I'd invite you to turn, if you have a copy of Scripture, to Romans chapter 1. We are picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are in Paul's great letter to the Romans. I've noted that it is both the greatest uh, portion of God's Word, it is the greatest part of Scripture, it is also arguably the greatest thing any man has ever written. Um, there are depths here. We have seen as we have looked at the first two opening sections that, that God has used this book in very powerful ways. Um, he used it in the conversion of Augustine. He used it in the conversion of Martin Luther. He used it in the conversion of John Wesley. He used it in my own conversion. And he may have used it in your conversion. Um, it, is, it is the weightiest portion of Scripture, and I am thrilled that we are in it. We are looking this morning at what is the thesis statement of this book, Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, two very short verses, and yet two verses that are pregnant with doctrine. These two verses have, have overthrown empires. That is not an overstatement. These two verses were so used in the Reformation that it changed Western civilization forever because of the truth that God has revealed in these two verses. And so we're looking this morning at Romans 1, 16 and 17. Now, the apostle has uh, explained his apostolic ministry. He has uh, explained that he was set apart for the gospel. He has explained that Christ is the central message of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus is himself the gospel. He has noted his longing to come and be with these people, though he has never had the opportunity. And he has told them at the very end of uh, that second section there in verse 14 that he was a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians, to wise and foolish, to preach the gospel everywhere, to all men. And now the apostle seamlessly weaves this thesis statement of this book into Uh, this chapter when he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or literally to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, we have seen in the opening section of this, in the first sermon that I preached out of this, how uh, this book had such a radical impact on the Reformation, and that was felt in a supreme way in Geneva. And yet this book had a very significant role to play in Geneva, not in the 16th century, under the ministry of John Calvin. This book had a powerful Place in Geneva 300 years later, almost 300 years later, in, in the early 19th century, under the ministry of a Scottish minister, a Scottish Reformed theologian named Robert Haldane. Now, I'm going to say this in passing this morning. There are certain books that you go to when you want to study the Book of Romans, and Robert Haldane's commentary is probably one of the top five books that I would recommend to you. It's a magnificent exposition of Romans, but what essentially happened in 1816, Robert Haldane wanted to take a trip with his wife to, to Geneva, and he had a correspondence there who was going to take him into the Alps, 
And what you may not know about Geneva in the 19th century is that Christianity was almost lost entirely. The divinity school there was run by Rousseau, that philosopher who hated Christianity, who had himself said that the name of Jesus was, was not even to be uttered in that place. Uh, the theological students there in Geneva were not studying the scripture. They were not hearing the things that you hear Lord's Day by Lord's Day. What they were being taught was Plato and Aristotle and pagan philosophy. And as Haldane made his way there and his friend was going to take he and his wife to the Alps on a trip, that friend got sick and he sent one of the divinity students. And Haldane realized very quickly that this man knew nothing of true Christianity. He knew nothing of the doctrines of grace. He knew nothing of the Trinity. He knew nothing of the deity of Christ. Haldane was so shocked that he decided he would spend a year there mentoring this man, and, and in turn, that man would start bringing friends. And over about a year of Haldane renting an apartment in Geneva and ministering to this young student and 20 to 30 of his friends through the Book of Romans, he started to see one by one they were converted. They came to saving faith in Christ. Their lives were so changed that God used some of them in some of the greatest ways in the 19th century. One of the names you may or may not have heard of is Merle Dabonier, who was a, um, a foremost, throughout his later life, a foremost Reformation history professor. Dabonier has written some of the greatest works about the Reformation. He was an unbeliever when he met Haldane. But as Haldane taught and lectured through the Book of Romans, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, Dabonier came to know Christ. Listen to this. He says about that time and the importance of it. He said, when I attended the University of Geneva, there was a professor of divinity who combined himself to lecturing on the immortality of the soul, the existence of God. But as to the Trinity, he did not believe it. Instead of the Bible, he gave us quotations from Seneca and Plato. Saint Seneca and Saint Plato were the two saints whose writings he held up to our admiration, but the Lord sent one of his servants to Geneva. I well and will always remember the visit of Robert Haldane. It's an awesome story. It's an awesome account of what God did. But God did it because Haldane understood that what is revealed in Romans, what is taught in these two verses, are some of the greatest truths anyone could ever hear, and they are necessary if men and women and boys and girls are going to come to saving faith in Christ. I want us to consider this morning just two things as we look at these two verses. I want us to first consider Paul's declaration of gospel confidence. And then I want us secondly to consider Paul's rationale for gospel confidence, his declaration of gospel confidence and his rationale for that confidence. Well, Paul does something very unique here in verse 16. And when, when you think about the Apostle Paul, you don't think about a man who is, who is uh, lacking in courage. You don't think about a man who's lacking in boldness. If there's, if there's a characteristic about the Apostle Paul, it's that he was very bold. In fact, in chapter 10 of this book, the Apostle will look back on the ministry of Isaiah, and, and he'll admire something about Isaiah that he wants to be true about himself. He'll, he'll say in passing, Isaiah was very bold. Paul was a bold man, and yet... Here, Paul intimates that there is ever the danger of even the boldest Christian, even the most courageous believer, succumbing to the temptation of being ashamed of Christ and the gospel. Now, remember, Paul is 
writing this letter to the center of political, military, and intellectual power in the first century. He, he is writing this to believers who live in, in the bastion of unbelieving secular power, all of the wickedness of Rome, all of the power of the leaders, where, where Caesar himself had set up his throne and sought to dominate the entire world. And he's writing them because he knows, here at the outset, he knows that they will be in danger of succumbing to the temptation of being ashamed of the gospel as, as they feel the opposition of the world in that place. Um, John Calvin, listen to this, says, this is an anticipation of an objection. He declares beforehand what he cared not for under the taunts of the ungodly. He intimates that it was con- the gospel was contemptible in the eyes of the world, and by saying this, he says he was not ashamed of it. Now, there's a very important word here for us because right now, as our culture rages, as the LGBT movement rages, as the many other movements rage and and the nations rage against Christ, we are always in danger of becoming ashamed of Jesus and the message of the gospel. And Paul's saying here in no uncertain terms, you have no reason to be ashamed of Christ. You have no reason to be ashamed. And and by saying that in the negative, he is also saying, by implication, positively, we have every reason to have confidence in the Lord Jesus. We have every reason to boast in him. We have every reason to boldly make him known. We have every reason to tell others about him. We have every reason to hold fast to him. It's a very important word at the outset. Paul knows what's in the human heart. He, he He knew what's in our hearts. He knew that great temptation. Remember, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the gospel was uh, foolishness to Greeks. Um, It was foolishness. It was weakness to the Jews. It was foolishness to the Gentiles. The world with all its philosophies finds what you listen to every week out of God's word to be supremely foolish. Listen to this, an old Southern Presbyterian, Thomas Peck, said, To the wisdom of this world, Christ crucified is foolishness. The fanciful speculations of Plato, the iron logic of Aristotle, the great swelling words of Zeno, amuse the imaginations of men, furnished an arena for intellectual activity and gratified the pride of men. In the gospel, he said, the whole thing was folly. Its expounders and defenders were seen as enthusiasts and madmen. That's, that's what the world thinks about what we believe. When, when the world hears that we are trusting in a crucified Savior who's nailed to a tree in weakness, who's mocked and derided by men, who is seen in every way to be weak and countercultural to what is presumed to be strength, they hate that message. The world hates that message. When, when we tell them the only way you can be saved is to trust in that crucified Christ, they hate that message. And yet Paul says we have no reason to be ashamed. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I want to just encourage you here this morning that when you are tempted in the workplace, when you're tempted in conversations with friends and neighbors to be ashamed of the gospel, remember this, you have no reason to be ashamed. You have every reason to boast in Christ. I mean, we serve the infinite and almighty Savior. 
We have a Savior who is infinite and almighty, who is going to judge the nations on Judgment Day. Paul will say, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have every reason to boast in him. He set his love on us. He's redeemed us. He bled for us. He atoned for our sins. He's reconciled us to God. He has not only pardoned us, he has clothed us with his righteousness. We're going to hear about all that. He is infinite in power. He is infinite in compassion. He is infinite in justice. He is infinite in gentleness. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he is the lamb that was slain. He is the Savior who says, come unto me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find rest for your souls. He is the Savior, John will tell us. He is the Savior who stands as an advocate for his people. Whenever we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He is the one of whom the unbelieving soldiers who were sent to arrest him said, No man ever spoke like this man. He is altogether lovely. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He entered this fallen, dark, wicked world to die on the cross, to redeem us, and to remove from our hearts the hostility that we had toward him. What a savior. Why would we ever be ashamed of Christ? Why would we fear the world's taunts and mocking and threats? The world has nothing. They have nothing and they're perishing. And this is what the world needs. And so Paul can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Christ is the only Savior for the world, for the nations. Now, I want us to consider this rationale and more focus. Notice that first Paul says that the gospel is power. Now, think about this. If, if you lived in the first century, as we live in America, we live in the most powerful nation in the world, at least we have been. And, and when John F. Kennedy was asked why he wanted to be the president of the United States, when Kennedy was asked why would he leave behind his, his long family heritage and, and corrupt practices, Kennedy, I did say that, Kennedy, Kennedy said because, because it's the most powerful position in the world. He was wrong. Christ is the very power of God. Christ is the infinite power of God. You know, we need such a power that can change this hard and dark and rebellious heart that can only be found in Christ crucified. The world sees Christ as weak, as pathetic. They mock him. They taunt his people. They say, you're weak. And yet Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that he is the very power of God and that the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christ is the weakness of God, and the weakness of God is more powerful than all the might of the world combined. That when Jesus dies on the cross in weakness, God is investing into the message of Christ and the preaching of that message all of his divine power to work in the lives of men and women. That's amazing. In fact, when Paul tries to explain what has happened to you as a Christian, he can only do so by saying you have undergone a resurrection. And he says in Ephesians that the same power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, the same power that it takes to resurrect someone, is the same power he works in his people through the preaching of the cross. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. What you and I need in our lives is, is God's power at work in us. Because we are so weak. We are so foolish. We are so sinful. We are so blind by nature. We are so hardened. Our hearts are so drawn to this world that we need what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. That sermon, by the way, Chalmers was another great Scottish theologian, and in that sermon he talks about how when an individual is a, a child, when he was a boy, he has boyish desires. He, he, for me, it was collecting baseball cards. He, he likes boyish things. And then when he gets older, he pursues things like money or success. He trades those earlier desires for these new desires. But what Chalmers says is in order for our hearts to be drawn off of the desire for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, in order for our hearts to be drawn off of the love of the world, there has to be an expulsive power of a new affection. God has to do something powerful in your soul. And that happens whenever you hear the message of Christ crucified, whenever you hear that God became man and hung in the cross for your sins and took your place and took God's wrath that you deserve. Whenever you hear that and you believe that, God's power is activated and is at work in you. That's amazing. Paul says, why would we be ashamed of that? That would be like us saying, you know, I'm ashamed that the U.S. has this great military power. All of God's divine power is reserved for you in the preaching of the gospel. And notice, Paul says it's the power of God for salvation. Um... That's what we need more than anything. We need to be saved. We need to be saved from our sin. We need to be saved from the guilt and power of our sin. We need to be saved from God's wrath. By the way, I, I love the meditation that, you know, God saves us from himself, but he saves us for himself. The living God saves you from his own just wrath by hanging on the cross so that he can bring you to be with him for all eternity. We need to be saved from eternal punishment. We need to be saved from this world and from the evil one. And, and God has so invested in the message of Jesus Christ crucified, all of that power for salvation, that whenever the gospel's preached, we may not see it, but God is doing something in the hearts and the lives of his people. That's one of the big reasons Paul says here that he's unashamed of the gospel. Another one is that there is a universal nature to the gospel. Notice that it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. What, what Paul is going to do, by the way, through the rest of this book, uh, really in chapter 118, the next verse, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, he's going to labor in the greatest way possible to explain that everyone, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, Slave and free, everyone is under the power of sin. Everyone is fallen in Adam. Everyone is under the curse of the law. Everyone needs salvation. Everyone. And that there's one message for all nations, for all peoples. There's one message that is for the whole world. And that's marvelous because we shouldn't be ashamed of believing the gospel if we understand that God has given this one message for the salvation of the nations. That's amazing. For the salvation of the nations, the very thing that I need, 
is the very thing that you need, is the very thing that everyone needs. It doesn't matter what home they grew up in. It doesn't matter what religion they were brought up in. They need Christ crucified for salvation. And Paul had this global vision, and you see it throughout this book. You see it in the preceding verses. That's why Paul said, look, I'm under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Um, I want to say this this morning. Not everyone is called to preach the gospel, but all God's people are called to support gospel ministry. All God's people are called to bear witness to the work of the gospel in their lives, in humility and meekness and gentleness with reverence. All God's people are called to labor alongside gospel ministers. And so what, what Paul is presenting here as he's speaking from himself is a, is a vision that all Christians should get on, that collectively we should say we will not be ashamed. Church Creek Presbyterian will not be ashamed of the gospel. It doesn't matter if every other church starts preaching another message. Um, this was J. Gretchen Machen's whole point during the the, the uh, modernist fundamentalist controversy of the, the 21st century, the church everywhere was liberalizing. The message of the cross was being removed from pulpits. People were ashamed of the gospel. They were, they were giving you a Christ who just wants to do humanitarian and philanthropic, uh, uh, I can't even say it this morning, humanitarian causes. They, they, they wanted a Christ that just wanted you to be kind to people and go out and just do good things. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's not the power of God unto salvation. Um, I would urge you this morning that if the church sees more and more deconstruction, apostasy, more and more replacing of this message, that we would hold fast to that message. Because what happened in Geneva in 1816 needs to keep happening in all the nations of the world as God's word and the gospel is proclaimed and lives are changed. God is reviving his people. And there's been a lot about revival recently. I'm going to spare you my opinion. You probably know what it is, but... Um, you know, every Lord's Day when the gospel is preached, God is reviving us. David said, revive me according to your word. Every Lord's Day, the fact that you're here this morning is marvelous, because in Geneva in 1816, there were not churches full of people like you who love this message. Now, if you're here and you don't love this message, you need to believe it. Notice what Paul says at the end of this. He says, we'll talk about the righteousness of God in just a second. He says, but is revealed from faith for faith. The just shall live by faith. It's a message that has to be believed. Christ has to be trusted in. We have to cast ourselves on him. We have to say from our hearts, Lord Jesus, if you don't save me, I will perish. We have to cry out every day of our life, oh God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. We'll never get to a point where we don't need the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sins ever. Because the cross is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now, I've noted already that underlining everything that Paul says is really this issue of the great problem man has. Man's problem is that he's not righteous. We are not righteous. There is not a single righteous person on this planet in and of himself or herself. That's what Paul's going to say in the rest of chapter 1, the great dilemma. The great dilemma. Man's plight 
is that he is unrighteous. Now, that's, that's the strongest way that Paul can talk about what sin is. If God is righteous, we are whatever is completely opposite to him. Um, listen to this. Eric Alexander says, This is the great problem that man faces. You see, his problem is not that he's unhappy. Please listen very carefully this morning, because many well-meaning, professing Christians are confused here. Man's great problem is not that he's unhappy. His problem is not that he's frustrated. His problem is that there is a God in heaven who has made him and will judge him. He is a righteous God, full of moral glory, and he demands righteousness of his creatures. And the thing that has his creatures do not have, that the creatures cannot provide and do not know where to find, is righteousness. We do not have it. We can't provide it. And by nature, we don't even know where to find it. How can I, an unrighteous, hell-deserving sinner, find a righteousness that will allow me to stand on Judgment Day before the infinitely righteous God? And if I searched the whole universe but never heard this message, I would never find it. I used to witness, I told you on the boardwalk in New Jersey, and 10 out of 10 people I would ask if they thought they would go to heaven when they died said yes. And if I asked them why, they would say, well, I think I've done a pretty good job. I've tried my best. I've done good works. And I would say, well, how many works are enough? They'd say, yeah, I don't know. You just try your best. See, that's, that's what theologians call the never enough quagmire. If that's what you're trusting in, it will never be enough. When Isaiah talks about the good works that unrighteous men and women try to present to God, he says, all our works of righteousness are as, and he, he uses discrete language in the English, they never give it in the, the picturesque way that the Hebrew carries, but it's, it's filthy rags. All our best works on Judgment Day would be us saying to God, look at these bloody, filthy rags. Look at this filth. Because our hearts are not doing them out of gratitude to him, and we're not trusting in the only one who can give us his righteousness. And that's why Paul says here, in the gospel, notice verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, you know that Martin Luther hated this phrase. He hated it before he was converted, and then he loved it more than anything, because he understood finally what it meant. And Luther, before he was converted, thought that what the phrase, the righteousness of God, meant was that we had to try to be righteous like God. And Luther knew he wasn't. He had attention. He recognized his unrighteousness, but he thought that what the scriptures were teaching, because the Roman Catholic Church had taught this, is that you have to perform righteous deeds because God is righteous and God approves you when you try to do righteous things. And then Luther realized that's not what this is teaching at all because he understood that God's standard is sinless perfection. That the bar is so high that unless I am perfectly righteous in every thought, word, and action, that I do not meet that standard. The law demanded personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. And we have not kept God's law, and we are under the curse of the law. But notice this, Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is marvelous, and you know that 
Paul's going to resolve the tension of unrighteousness in chapter 118 to 320 there in 321 to 26. That's the mountaintop that, that God has revealed Christ and has given him to solve this problem. And that Jesus merits for us a perfect righteousness. He stands in our place. He represents us. He is the last Adam. He does what Adam should have done but didn't do. He, he, he keeps the law of God perfectly. He's born under the law. He obeys every precept, every commandment. He never uttered a sinful thought, word, or action. Jesus Christ never had a sinful thought, word, or action. That's amazing, given how much we do. And he did it for us so that if we trust in him, we not only get our sins forgiven by his bloodshed on the cross, we can have confidence, and listen very carefully this morning, because Paul's going to take us from here to Romans 8.1. He's going to take us from these verses straight to chapter 8, verse 1, and he's going to say, if you're in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. You know, I'm going to be as transparent with you as I can this morning. What terrifies me more than anything um, is, is the thought that on Judgment Day I would not be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Because that's the only thing that's going to enable us to stand. And it will most certainly enable you to stand. Now when you come to the book of Revelation, those opening chapters, and John has that heavenly vision, and, and he hears the host of heaven crying out, uh, and, and one of the things that, that is said is, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the Lord on that great and awful day? Who is going to be able to say, Lord, I did my best? None of us. None of us is going to be able to say, but Lord, I tried really hard. I tried to be a good person. Um, and, and John says, he hears them saying, who can stand? And then there's this marvelous picture. In chapter 7, he says, I saw standing before the throne, a company too great to number. And they're crying out and worshiping the lamb who was slain. How is it that they can stand? Because they are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It has been imputed to them. It is credited to them. It is put to their credit. So that when God looks at you in the realest sense, I want to say this this morning, when God looks at you, if you're in Jesus by faith, if you're united to him, if you're trusting him, you, before God's tribunal, are just as righteous as Christ. Not in yourself, but because he took your place, he took your sin, and he gave you his righteousness. This is why Paul cries out in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, God the Father made God the Son. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's why Paul says in Galatians 3, that Christ became a curse for us, so that God might bless us with the blessing of Abraham. Now, this is marvelous. I hope that message never gets old to you. I need to hear that every day in my life. Because we forget these things, and then we put ourselves in that never-enough quagmire thinking, well, maybe if I just do better, maybe if I just try harder, maybe if I don't give in to this sin at that time. But when we remember this, we're confident that God is for us, there is no condemnation, that Christ has forgiven all our transgressions, that he has accepted us and made us accepted in him before God. 
And that's going to make us want to do what's pleasing to God because we're not going to sit around terrified that on judgment day, maybe he won't accept me because I haven't done enough. You see, it's, it works the opposite direction that what we think by nature will work. Um, I love this. I'll just read this to you this morning as we walk out of this. Sinclair Ferguson says, God manifests righteousness in terms of whether we are rightly related to him in his covenant. So if we are unrighteous to him in his covenant, he rightly reveals his righteousness in judgment and condemnation. If we are unrighteous to God toward him and his covenant, he reveals his righteousness toward us in judgment and condemnation. Ferguson says, you find that, you find that in the Old Testament But to those, he says, who are rightly related to him in his covenant, he reveals his righteousness and blessing and joy and delight and pleasure and communion in Christ. Isn't that amazing? Now, if all those things are true, and they are, why would we ever be ashamed of the gospel? Why would we not labor with all that we have to see that message proclaimed in every way to everyone we can get that message to? Now, You know, I am not standing up here as a man who is never ashamed of the gospel. I have, to my shame, felt embarrassment at times. You know, Peter felt it when he denied Jesus three times, right outside the place where Jesus was going to provide that redemption, right outside where Jesus begins his suffering. And yet God bolsters us with these truths. And he he binds up the wound of our being ashamed of the gospel. And he gives us courage to to get to the place where Paul is to say, I'm not ashamed of this message. And though the whole world, I'm going to say this again, though the whole world rages against us, we have no reason, no reason to be ashamed of this. In fact, we have every reason to boast in it, to glory in it, to proclaim it, to love it, to herald it. I hope that you'll be encouraged this morning as we consider these things and as this really sets the, the stage for everything else Paul's going to say in this letter, that you will meditate deeply on those truths, that you will pray that God will remove from you any sense of being ashamed of the gospel and that you will cherish these truths, that you will hold them fast and that you will trust wholly in Jesus because as Paul says, quoting Habakkuk 2, for the righteous, the just shall live by faith, and as he intends, by faith alone. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for these truths, how how much we need our hearts to be gripped by them. Lord, we confess to you that we have, at times, been ashamed of the gospel, been ashamed of Christ, been ashamed of telling others about him. And so we pray that we would know in our experience this morning, Lord, the great and almighty power that you have invested in the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins, that you would make us to see what the Lord Jesus has done for us in establishing a righteousness for us and clothing us with that righteousness by faith alone. Oh God, would you increase our faith? Would you give us a stronger dependence and trust in Christ? Would you free our hearts? From this world, the love of it, and the fear of men. And our God, would you use us at this time to proclaim this message so that others may know your power at work in them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.